Good evening, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and we have a, I think, a fabulous show lined up for you this week. So I hope you stay tuned throughout. As always, if you'd like to get in contact with me to have maybe something you'd like to hear on the show featured or a project that you're involved in, hop over to midlands103.com, click on the on-air team. You'll see my face there and uh, click on my name, Ashling O'Rourke, and you will get to send me an email directly from that button. And I always read those messages. So thanks to everybody who gets in touch each and every week. We have a, a number of interesting items lined up for you tonight. But first things first, we're going to talk all things motoring. And we're joined by motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert. You're very welcome back to the show. Good evening, Ashley. So Geraldine, there's been a lot of talk around the, this new E10 petrol in recent weeks. And, you know, there was kind of a fear when it was coming in first and people were a bit unsure. But like, I think there's a lack of knowledge around what exactly it's all about. So can you explain what is E10 petrol and what's all the fuss about? Yeah, there's been a lot of confusions about confusion about this, Ashley. OK, this has been on, I suppose it's been talked about for quite a long time. It was just a case of when it was going to be introduced. So currently, if you're filling your car, you're filling it with E5. So that means it's um, 95% regular unleaded petrol with a 5% ethanol mix. Now, that's going to 10% with E10. So essentially, that's where it's getting the name. And it replaces the E5 as the new kind of standard grade of petrol this month. Now, ethanol is manufactured from plants and it was introduced in Europe in 2009 and it's been used extensively in the US since the 70s and in Brazil and in Australia and the why it's been introduced here is to cut CO2 and it actually will have quite a dramatic impact on our existing car fleet and I suppose that's the big advantage of it because it's not a case of having to replace cars or having to do something it'll actually have the minute it goes in it will have an impact and that's um, that's why it's part of the government's plan to reduce emissions. So this, we're not guinea pigs here. Other countries have been there, done that, and it has gone okay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As I said, it's new to Ireland, but it's certainly not new. It's been used for decades across the world, and it's been extensively used in Europe as well. Now, in terms of what cars are suitable and what aren't, again, mm. a lot of confusion about this. Now, all cars manufactured since 2011 are actually certified compatible with E10, but there's no reason to believe that cars that are older than that are going to have any issue. Now, just because they're not certified doesn't mean anything. It simply means just from 2011, it was part of kind of what the manufacturers did. They gave this cert as well. But if in, in the US, as I said, where it's been used extensively, there was a study in um, 2021 conducted by the US Department of Energy, and they looked at the introduction of E10 in the US and across all of the states and the various different cars that used it. And they concluded that any vehicle made to international standards in the last 50 years would have been very probably highly compatible with E10. So, like, I mean, we're looking at decades of research on this. So really, there isn't a concern for the vast majority of, of motorists. You can, I suppose, understand, though, because of this level of confusion, why people who have cars that are older than 2011, which isn't all that long ago, um, why they might be worried about it. Because, like, 
and I know not everybody has done it, but I have been there and I've witnessed someone put diesel into a petrol car and see what happened there, you know, and or sorry, the other way around. And, you know, the panic that ensued. And I suppose no one wants a car is a very expensive piece of kit and no one wants to be the guinea pig. No one wants to try it out and realize that actually my car that's 20 years old isn't compatible. So is there a way of finding out, like if you're someone who owns what would be considered at this stage a vintage vehicle, is there a way of trying it out beforehand or or like is there a resource you can go to to figure out if someone has tried it with your car first? Okay, I'll tell you the best advice at the moment. As I said, anyone with a car that is twenty is less than 20 years old has nothing to worry about. If your right. car is older than 20 years, the advice is basically that you keep a close eye on certain components when it's being serviced. Now, E10 absorbs more water in, from the atmosphere than E5, right? So as a result, things like hoses and seals may have to, replace, be, have, have to be replaced more often. So if you have a, a regular mechanic that you take your car to, you'd be as well to say to him, listen, just have a quick close a closer look on those than we normally would simply because of this. And that's that's the advice, really, that you may have to replace them slightly more often. Now, if you have a, a cherished classic car, you know, and one of these that's very expensive and it's the light of your life and you've mm-hmm. invested that many hours of labour, again, you need to look at the fuel system components and you could consider replacing them and making them compatible with E10. Again, it's entirely up to you, Ashley, you know, in terms of how much this car is worth to you. And, you know, you knew, again, you'd play it by ear. But that's the real thing. It's not that it'll do any damage to the car, but those sort of components are more likely to be worn out. Now, there's also additives you can look at. And they offer protection against potential corrosion. So what I would say to anybody, as I said, if you have a car that's 20 years old or more, talk to your mechanic. Mm -hmm. If you have a classic car, there are lots of classic car owners in the UK and organisations that you can contact because it's been in the UK since 2021. So they have much more experience of it. But again, I know vintage owners who've got in touch with classic car owners across Europe who've been using this and there hasn't been a problem. You do have to look out for certain things. So that's why I would say is have a chat with somebody and, you know, get some advice about the additives for sale. And if you are concerned, talk to your local dealership, your garage, your car manufacturer, whatever. But there's a lot of advice and a lot of useful information out there. And the whole reason behind this, as you said, is to to cut our carbon emissions. So this is a more environmentally friendly fuel then. It is. And as I said, the thing about it is it makes an instant difference because these are cars that are currently on the road. Just in terms of Ashing to give you kind of an idea of how many cars would be impacted by this, the average age of an Irish car at the moment is about nine, the nine years old. And diesel makes up about 63% of the share of the, uh, the whole, the national car fleet. And of the one million cars that are on it, there's a very, very low percentage that would be over 20 years. Mm. So really the vast, vast majority of motors have not Thing to fear from using E10. And I really do think that people need to be reassured about that, particularly people who are have cars that are, as you know, as you pointed out before 2011, who might be worried, but aren't at the 20 year point. They're actually fine and they don't have to be worried. But again, if you do have one of those very expensive vintage babies effectively yes exactly check, well check with the mechanic after exactly check with the mechanic first just to make sure well you probably should be checking with the mechanic anyway to make sure it's all the car is healthy and all of that but um maybe just check with the mechanic first see what the situation is with your particular vehicle yeah now, i suppose the other thing actually just to make the point is you cannot buy e5 anymore in a filling station right but there mm-hmm. may be some specialist outlets that will still have it that's that's really up to them and there's nothing very clear about that 
that. But legally, you cannot like go to any four court in the country and fill up with it. But as I said, that's not to say there might it might be available somewhere. So there's, there's always one, Geraldine, isn't there? Yeah, there's <laughs> always one that'll bring it in for the lawnmower or something, you know. <laughs> So then, Geraldine, do we know, is it as efficient as the petrol that we're used to? It, you know, will, will it go as far? Because we're we're all very accustomed to the cost of living crisis at this stage and we've been watching the cost of petrol very closely. Yeah, there's some talk that it's slightly less efficient than E5. But to be honest, Ashing, your own driving style is probably the biggest um, that will have the biggest impact on your, your fuel efficiency. So if you're one of these people who, you know, races off at the traffic lights and slams on your brakes and races around corners, that is going to consume your fuel far faster than changing from E5 to E10. So I would say just, yeah, it's slightly less efficient, but you shouldn't really notice it because your own driving style should be able to counteract that. No problem. Just smooth driving and um, makes a huge difference people would you'd never believe how much of a difference you can make and um, by just the way you drive your car in terms of getting the most out of your fuel so you mean those people that might uh, slam on the brakes very suddenly when they realize they're actually heading towards a red light their their fuel efficiency wouldn't be great then yeah, and that wouldn't be you and I now. No, be, God, no, no, be, never. Be definitely other people. But yeah, they would definitely notice the difference. Yes. So, Geraldine, then we're we're I'm not wishing the summer away, but we are heading towards July and we flagged this earlier on in the year. But the EV grant, there is a bit of a sting in the tail coming. It's been reduced from next month. Yeah, so from the 1st of July, there's a grant at the moment of €5,000. It's the SEAI grant and it's on all electric cars under 60000 in value. Um, and it's been reduced from 5000 to uh, 3500 So basically a, a cut of 1500 It's quite a big chunk of money, realistically. Now, I know in the overall scheme, if you're spending 40000 on a car, 1500 isn't that much, but it's still a lot of money to be to be losing out on. Yeah, I think it is as well, Ashing. And I think the real where the, where to do the most damage is exactly the the end of the market that we're trying to encourage, which is that lower end, the thirty thousand, the sort of thirty to thirty five thousand. We're seeing more and more cars coming into that price bracket, and that price bracket is very price sensitive because if you're spending thirty, suddenly going up to thirty one and a half, that that's a big jump, much less of a jump if you're in the fifties or as you said, the forties. Mm. So I think that's unfortunately where we're going to see it now. I know there's a delay with electric cars at the moment and people are probably worried that they might miss out on the 5,000 grant if they don't get a car in time. The government has said that any orders placed before the 1st of July, um, even if you're waiting four months for a car, you'll still benefit from the um, from the full grant rather than the reduced grant. But what I think is quite interesting at the moment is a lot of the car makers are putting their prices up anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, so it's almost like they're passing on that that reduction to customers nearly already. So there's little to be, um, you know, there's little consolation to be taken from that one way or another. You know, I think cars are electric cars are going to go up by 1500 from July regardless. Am I right in thinking that the government's thinking on this is that the money that they would have been handing out through this 1500 euro in an electric car grant is now going to be invested in roadside charging across the motorway system, you know, across the country that they're, they're going to use the money, supposedly at least, to invest in that charging infrastructure? 
Yeah, that is the justification. There's 100 million going into the public charging network and there's all sorts of great promises made over Mm. the next few years. And one of the really big ones, as you point out, is that there'll be a fast charger every 60 kilometres on the motorway. And that is desperately needed. But I think both are needed. I think we still need to support the sales and we do desperately need to invest in the infrastructure. But I do think myself it's a bit too early to be reducing um, the grant. I think, you know, we're nowhere near the number of electric cars on the roads that we need. We're nowhere near selling enough new ones to create a secondhand market. So I really do think it's too early to be cutting that. But no, the 100 million investment in the public charging network is most definitely very, very welcome and very, very needed. So, you know, I'm not arguing against that. I just think there should be money found for both. And, you know, during the pandemic, there was money found from places where, you know, you kind of wonder where the priorities are. Like it just like, let's be honest about it. 30,000 euro of a a car. That's the equivalent of a deposit for a nice house in the Midlands. You know, like it's a lot of money. So making increasing it ever so slightly could push it out of affordability for people, even even by as little supposedly as fifteen hundred. Yeah, because the problem at the moment is everything is going up. I mean, we saw the tolls, the the tolls are due to rise, the increases coming in in July as well. And it's all these things. And if you take them in, in, in you know, individually, you go, oh, well, it's only this. But add it together, people are being squeezed more and more. So there's less money available for these things. And I think the big problem is that the vast majority of people buy in the secondhand market, obviously. So the priority, the only way we can we can get that secondhand market is through new car sales. There was a time people could go to the UK and import cars, but that has become just so less attractive with Brexit that really we're relying on new car sales to generate that secondhand market. So it's hard to see how we're going to do that if we start to cut back on the grants. And as I said, the big problem with a, a one sort of sum like 1500 is it'll impact the lower end of the market much more than it will the upper end. Is there any chance there'll be a government rollback on it before the month is out? No, I wouldn't think so. And I think what's really worrying is if we look at what they did with the plug-in hybrid grant, the chances are the plan is to reduce it again from January. And I would say that's what's going to happen. So we will probably see this time next year that grant completely gone, because if it's reduced again by 1500, you'll be down to just 1500 by January and then it could be gone again in July. And I would say that's what the plan is. So definitely not. I wouldn't see them rolling back. And you'd really wonder what the logic is on that one. But I don't think you'll be able to you'll be able to explain that one for us, Geraldine. Thank you. Unfortunately so much. not. <laughs> Geraldine Herbert, motoring journalist. Thank you very much for your time today on Let's Go Green. We will be back after the break. Midlands 183. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And I hope you are enjoying our show so far this week. Well, I don't know about you, but you may have been following a court case involving a family in Dublin who had erected a bike shed in their front garden. And then, well, all hell broke loose, basically, because people started complaining that it was unsightly and it ended up involving solicitors and all that. Right. And the case got people's attention, got people talking about it. um, And it's gotten the attention of the Green Party. So as of today, the Green Party has announced that they're putting a motion before uh, the Houses of the Oireachtas that domestic bike sheds would no longer require planning permission within reason. 
Okay, so the suggestion is that by allowing people erect bike sheds in their in front of their houses, in their home, in their garden, wherever it might be, um, that it would encourage more and more people to cycle. Now, in fairness, they have a point. I mean, the weather in Ireland can at times be miserable and no one wants to go out in the morning and get up on a wet bike and head to school or college or work. I get that. I, I get why you'd want to keep the bike dry. Bikes are also, even with the cycle to work scheme, bikes also cost an awful lot of money. So if you've invested money in it, well, if it were me at least, I'd want to mind it. So I get why for some people getting a bike shed um, is something you want to do. Personally, storing a bike inside my home is just not something I'm interested in doing. As far as I'm concerned, any kind of vehicle is kept outdoors. I don't want to bring the dirt inside. Now, look, I'll hold my hands up here. Um, If you've been a long, long time listener to me on Midlands 103, you might recall I suffered a rather nasty cycling incident back in 2011 when I was cycling home from a a long day at Midlands 103 and I um, basically lost focus and had a nasty accident and ended up out of work for a while and had quite a severe concussion and and a couple of broken bones and torn ligaments out of it. So I haven't been a cyclist since then. It put the fear of it into me. Um, and although I'm not one that has many phobias in life, I just haven't gotten over that one just yet. Even though I do see the convenience of it, uh, particularly electric bikes and think, God, one of these days I'll get back up in the bike. And I haven't even sold that particular bike because I want to get back up in it. And I hope at some point I will get, get the confidence to do the, just that. Um And look, maybe you're not a cyclist, maybe like me, you're you're a motorist and you're wondering about this measure. And look, it's all very well and good to encourage people to cycle to work and to school and to go to the shop or meet somebody for coffee. But from my own perspective, until we have a functioning public transport system, which would include cycle routes and cycle paths on our roads that don't also include drains and potholes, you know, that are safe to cycle on, for example. Um, But until we make it easier and we have buses that we can rely on, buses that if the app says it's going to turn up at the bus stop at 10.05, that it does actually turn up at 10.05. Like, I think this is a lovely little story, right? And, you know, Fair enough, if it gets passed, grand, I've no real objections to it. I'm not giving out about it. But it's a band-aid. Do you know, if you want to get people like me... Now, fair enough, my car is a hybrid and my next car will be electric whenever I can afford to do that. But that'll be a while off, (laughs) speaking of the money of it. But, you know, if you want people to actually get out of our cars and start using more environmentally friendly methods of transport make the public transport infrastructure one that functions like those in our European neighbours. I can go to Amsterdam for a weekend, walk out of my hotel and on practically every street there's a tram service. It's not just the red line or the green line, you know, they have a whole load of lines. They all go to all parts of the city, not just north and south. It's something... I do, and I'll be honest, I'm on my soapbox here, so please do forgive me. It's something that drives me around the twist. Not everybody 
is going to be able to get up on a bicycle for whatever reason. You might, like I know in my work, I need to bring a a laptop and a microphone and kit with me to work. So it's not practical for me to walk or cycle to work because, to be honest, my bag weighs about 10 kg on a daily basis, you know. So it's not suitable for everybody. So spend the money where it matters. This kind of a Band-Aid measure... Yeah, sure, it'll probably get a couple of headlines in the newspapers. Great. Won't actually solve the climate crisis. Maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you think I'm being unkind, but those are my two cents on it. Much rather to see that you could get a train to Tullamore at midnight after a night out from Dublin or Galway, as opposed to finish at seven o'clock in the evening, for example. But hey, maybe I'm looking for too much. Stay tuned. I'll be back with another chat, this time about birds and bird watching. Stay tuned to Midlands 103 and we will be back after the break. Midlands 103. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and we are going to turn things up, turn to things, all things birds right now. Sorry, I'm getting all tongue tied. And I'm joined by Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland. Niall, you're very welcome back to the show. Many thanks, Ashton. Great to be here. Now, Niall, at this time of year, we tend to hear a lot of focus around the dawn course. Hmm. And and I know the dawn course is spectacular. And I have on occasion gotten up just to hear it, just to see what all the fuss was about. And it is wonderful. But I'll be honest, most days I'm not getting out of bed at that hour of the morning if I don't have to. And <laughs> I'd say that's the same for most people. You know, we our, our night sleep is important whenever that might happen. The dusk chorus, I don't think, gets enough enough coverage at all. And it can be equally beautiful. So talk to me, what happens at dusk? What is it that, why is it that this, I know, this cacophony of sounds comes at at that point in the day? Well, you're quite right. The the dusk chorus at the end of the day can be every bit as good as the more famous dawn chorus. So definitely would urge people to get out there and enjoy it. Um, There's a couple of theories about why the birds do sing in you know late in the evening and then again early in the morning but it really comes down to territorial defense so at the end of the day when it's getting too dark for them to be able to feed what they do is they use that last bit of time they have that last bit of light uh, to proclaim their territories again essentially they're telling their neighbors particularly members of the same species like, this is my land you stay off my patch you're not welcome mm-hmm. in here uh, and we're going to go to sleep shortly but just let you know this is where I am this is my area and then the following morning the theory is they start to sing at first light again to let the neighbours know I survived the night, I'm still here this territory is still occupied. So the dawn chorus and the dusk chorus are are really part of the same thing. It's a way of of, of staking a claim to your territory and in the early part of the nesting season, well it's about about attracting in a mate. Uh, So that's uh, that's, that's generally what they're doing. And that's actually why as you get on through the summer why the dawn chorus and the dusk chorus tend to um, be shorter and and, and sort of peter out after a while. It's because once the birds are down to the serious business of nesting they have their territory, they have chicks um, they don't need to sing quite so much. So it's really this very aggressive and very macho thing that they're doing mainly at the start and, and towards the middle of the nesting season. Uh, so once, most, yeah. once they've settled, they get quieter. Yes, they, yeah, they do absolutely. Well, they get they, they get quieter perhaps because they don't uh, they don't need to be quite so defensive of the territory mm-hmm. anymore, or perhaps because they're completely knackered. Uh, they're flying back and forth trying to stuff loads of worms or flies or whatever into little chicks' faces, and then they might have a second brood then on the way for for many species like robins and blackbirds and thrushes regularly would do that. So they're pretty tired. And what you'll find then is at the end of the summer they tend to keep quite a low profile. 
Mum and dad are absolutely wrecked. Their feathers are usually in very tatty condition. They've been working really hard. They haven't gotten too much sleep themselves. And you mentioned how important sleep is. Same for birds. Uh, so they need to rest. What they do then at the end of the summer is they molt their feathers. So they'll actually lose and replace all of their feathers, not all in one go, but they do it over gradually over a period of a few weeks. But during that time, often they're less well able to fly or to keep themselves safe. So they tend to become a little bit shyer. So a lot of people think then towards the end of the summer, birds have all disappeared. Where have they gone? Uh, in fact, there are more birds around at that time of year than any other because there's so many of the youngsters have joined their parents in the population. Lots of young birds are around, but they're replacing their feathers. So they, they, they're vulnerable for a few weeks. They keep kind of quiet. And then in the, in the late autumn and then into the early winter, all of a sudden they come come back with a bang into people's gardens and people notice them more then. Okay, okay. And like, I suppose there will be a thinking that maybe we don't see them at that point in the year because they've already got, they've already left, but they're, they're still around, they're still working away, they're just rather tired. They are. Now, of course, some birds will leave us. So mm-hmm. some of our migrants, so uh, the swallow would be a classic example, the, the swift and house martin, also birds uh, like the willow warbler, a bird, a bird that very few members of the general public in Ireland know, but it's one of our commonest birds. There's over a million pairs of them nesting in Ireland, but they're only here during the summer. They're migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the cuckoo, another great example, sedge warbler, there's many more. They do leave us. And so once the breeding season has ended, they have no real reason to stay around in Ireland too much longer. They want to feed up to make sure that they're nice and fit and healthy to give them the best possible chance of surviving that migratory journey because the sad fact is most don't survive it. Most die in the attempt. Uh, but if they stayed behind because they're insect eaters largely, there wouldn't be enough insects in the European winter to support them. So there's no choice but to move to sub-Saharan Africa to get more food. But then lots of our garden birds do stay with us year-round. So our robins, our black blackbirds, blue tits, grey tits, coal tits, long-tailed tits, um, birds like that, they they stay with us around our gardens and or the general area for, for most of the time. Um, probably the most loyal of all that we have is a bird called the dunnock. It rarely moves more than about 100 metres or so from where it first hatched out itself. So they're ones that are around us all the time. Uh, and life's particularly tough for them in the winter because they, the, the dunnock and, and the wren and other, and other species that lives in a similar way, they're insect eaters, so even in the, but they can't mm. migrate. So even in the, the very coldest days in the depths of winter, uh, they need to find enough insects to enable them to survive. So all the more important for them towards the tail end of the summer and into the autumn that they they manage to get lots of nutrition then so they face the winter as fit and healthy as possible. On the, the dusk chorus, Nile, why is it, do you think, that it hasn't captured our attention as much as the dawn chorus has? Like, um, there seems to be nearly uh, not quite a cult built up around it, but people do love to be seen on social media, sharing themselves, getting up at the crack of dawn to listen to it. It's something to talk about. Why do you think it, it, the Dusk Chorus gets a little bit ignored? Well, I definitely think that the Dawn Chorus has been romanticised quite a mm. lot. And because it is such an early time, I mean, you know, it, it depends where in Ireland you are, but on the East Coast, the Dawn Chorus is actually a little bit earlier than it would be on the West Coast, just because of the rising sun. Uh, the birds start to sing at the at very first light. That's what prompts it. I suppose because, you know, in the middle of the summer, it might start at 4 or 4.15 in, in, in some parts of the East Coast of Ireland. It's a time of day when most people are, are asleep. So to get up and experience that, it's like an event out of the ordinary. You're making a special commitment Whereas with the dusk course, it's something that you could just you could encounter when you're um you're 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 just out in the garden of the evening having a nice barbecue or you know when you're going home from the pub or whatever it may be. It doesn't take quite such a special commitment to go and do it because it's more within our sort of normal waking hours. So that's part of it. Um now there's no denying that 
in, when the conditions are just right, there's nothing quite like a dawn chorus. It does tend to be often just that little bit richer than, than the, the corresponding dusk chorus. Having said that, a lot of that depends on the weather and the light levels and so on. And some dusk choruses can be absolutely magical. Uh, birds, particularly like blackbirds and song thrushes, often put on a very good display, a vocal display in the, in the evenings. So, um, you know, the way I look at it, it's not, it's not either or. I would definitely recommend everyone tries to experience uh, a dawn chorus at least once a year, if at all possible, because there's something really magical about it. But the dusk chorus, it's something I suppose that we can enjoy more frequently. And it's more part of our daily lives and it can be absolutely wonderful as well. I wonder, is it because it's around tea time and most people are heading home from work? So we're all so preoccupied with and perhaps exhausted after the day that we just don't notice. Um, but that's my own theory. There's no scientific evidence to back that one up. Um, when I was small, I had a childminder who, when she'd see a flock of birds heading off, if it was earlier in the day, they were off to school. And if it was in the evening time, they were coming home from school and they were going to bed. So I had to go to bed. It was this whole thing. But it was the simplest of tales, but it's stuck in my head ever since. Um, and in the evening time, we can see activity of birds that is particularly spectacular around this time of year. So if we want to, if we're maybe an amateur photographer, like I know James Crombie got an amazing shot of, of a murmur last summer. If we want to try our hand at this, or maybe there's somebody, a young person in our life that might have an interest in photography. Do you have any tips as to how do we know where to go even or what, what ty- type of thing should we be looking out for? Well, certainly when you're coming towards the autumn time and when the breeding season is ending, you do see lots of birds gathering together in flocks. Now, the, the big famous starling murmurations, I should say, that they're very much a winter phenomenon. So that's not okay. really something you'd see in the in the summer. I would normally from around November through to January, you start to see them really at their very, very best. Having said that, birds will flock. One, one of my favourite things actually to see uh, during the, the late summer is sometimes the the, the, the the big groups of crows that gather together for these uh, nocturnal roosts that they have. Mm-hmm. And they can gather together in spectacular numbers and do all sorts of aromatic displays. I think, you know, okay, they're noisy for sure, but they can be quite beautiful in their own way. But I think that the thing with it is that these spectacles are not as common as they used to be, regardless of what species you're talking about. You know, if we were if we were talking um, in some some way, you know, if, if this is possible, if something like this 100 years ago, uh, people wouldn't have been talking so much about where to go to see big groups of starlings. It would have something that would have been taken for granted in every village in Ireland. But now you do have to go to special locations for it. So, um they're not always totally consistent. Probably the most reliable place in Ireland for starling murmurations in recent years has been um, has been near Mullingar, actually Loch Ennell, a place called okay. Lilliput. Very, very good for them there. Uh, and Why Lilliput? What makes well, it, it, what's special it, about it? Now, I think Lilliput and Loch Ennell is lovely, but in this instance, what's special about it? Well, you think it's lovely, and as do I, but the Starlings would, would certainly agree with us on that because it ticks all the boxes that they need that kind of, I suppose you have to realize why are they doing these murmurations in the first place? Nobody's quite sure, but what they do, we know they need, they need a big open space with areas nearby like root beds or trees, dense trees where they can sleep in the evening. And that big open space, they want to be able to make sure the predators find it very difficult to sneak up on them. So if that can be over a big lake, um, that means, well, there's, there's fewer species are going to be able to, to surprise them. You will sometimes get hawks and falcons coming in to hunt them, and peregrine falcons are actually quite regular at that, at that, at that murmuration. But there's fewer birds that are going to be able to come in and hunt them from there, and they're completely safe from ground predators. So it's a big expanse of a lake like that, but the weather also tends to be relatively good at that time of year. That's important. And the, it's also worth noting that the lake there is fringed by very extensive reed beds in certain areas, which are perfect areas for those birds to then go sleep in the evening. So it seems to, to tick all those boxes. Now, there are a few other places 
prices as well that tend to be pretty consistent. In recent years, there's been off and on at least some good um, murmurations seen around Bettystown in County Meath. Uh, over Wexford Town, it can be quite good. It's not as big as the one at Lilliput, but it's still quite spectacular. Uh, Belfast as well, it's quite good. Along some of the bridges on the, on the River Lagan, um, they will roost there at night and they do displays over the river beforehand. Then also um, parts of Tipperary, the Carrow Wetlands, that kind of area can be quite good too. However, it changes from year to year, which is why Birdwatch Ireland has recently, in recent winter, started a starting murmuration survey asking people to keep track of those um, and, and report where they are so we can keep on top of that. Uh, there are other birds that form lovely flocks as well. And um, one of the ones that's often mistaken for starting murmuration, particularly at wetlands in the late autumn or into the winter, is big flocks of golden plover, which is a, a beautiful wading Go- bird. Golden what? Golden plover. Golden I've plover. P L Never heard. Golden plover. All right. Okay. Ireland's rarer breeding birds. We, we do have a population of them, small numbers still breeding the uplands. They, they're bird very much of, of mountains and open moorland and heathland. Um, they do breed in small numbers, though they're declining, but lots of them breed in Iceland. It's quite a common bird there, as well as in parts of Scandinavia. And many of those birds in, in their thousands actually spend the winter in Ireland. So they start to arrive in the autumn and often over mudflats and estuaries. You'll see them gathering together in big flocks of several thousand birds wheeling over the mudflats. Um, they don't sort of shift around the same sort of effect as a murmur, starting murmuration, which is almost like watching a lava lamp or smoke in the sky. It's so fluid. Mm-hmm. But they do still move in very impressive, uh, coordinated flocks of thousands of birds. That is quite special. Uh, and you know, one of the reasons for that, we, we can enjoy it here in Ireland, is because we are on migratory crossroads for so many birds. And that's one of the things that I like most about bird watching in Ireland. Uh, almost anything can turn up here and it changes throughout the seasons constantly. So it really is a very exciting place to get out there. I think the main thing is to get out there you never know what you might see. And I think as well, it's fair to say, perhaps go somewhere quiet, maybe a little bit away from yeah. traffic so that you can actually hear the birds so that you have an idea as to which direction to be looking in. Um, and then oh, patience. Yeah. Well, p- patience is the most important thing of all. Absolutely. And that's that's something that uh, so co- comes hard to some people. But the fact of it is, that's also one of the lovely things about bird watching mm-hmm. uh, and, and immersion in nature. It kind of you're focused on a task. And if you if you allow yourself to fully commit to it, it's really diverting. It's a great way to to relieve stress, to take your mind off your worries. It, it, it really, I think we all need a bit of that in our lives. And that's one of the things about, about bird watching. For some people, it's almost akin to, to meditation in some ways. And for other people, it's sort of the, the thrill of the hunt. It's sort of like, you know, um, you know, sort of something we make up for our hunter-gatherer ancestors that we want to try and track down our quarry. But um, rather than rather than kill it and eat it, we, we just sort of revel in the beauty of it. And, and we feel a sense of achievement when we connect with nature in that way. And because it takes a little bit of effort, um, it's all the more rewarding when it pays off. It doesn't happen every time. That's the thing as well. I think if it was, if it was a dead cert, it wouldn't be quite such an attractive uh, pastime. But because you never quite know how it's going to go, I think it's, I think it's like, that, that's actually part of the beauty of it. Well, for my own part, I love going to, I go, love this time of year, I'm looking to make nice photographs, Loch Ennell, but also mm. Loch Bora and the parklands around Loch Bora. I think particularly for young people, if they're interested in trying out their photography skills, whether it's of the of the nature or the wildlife or the birds, um, they're both excellent locations. Well, Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, thank you so much for joining us once again on Let's Go Green. My pleasure, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Midlands 183. You've been listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 with myself, Ashling O'Rourke, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the show. What do you think about the bike shed measure? Is it, as I quite frankly believe it is, just a band-aid, yet another band-aid on what is a massive problem? Or maybe you think I'm being unfair and a bit too cynical. But, you know... 
age will do that to a person. If you would like to chat to me on the show, if you want to come on air with me, talk through what you think the government should be doing to tackle the climate crisis, I'd love to hear from you. Just hop on to midlands103.com, click on On Air Team and you'll see uh, a picture of myself. Ashling O'Rourke, click there and you'll be given a link to send me an email directly. Please do get in contact with me. I love hearing from you and you do inspire items on the show. Whether or not I, you know, people might not want to come on, on air, but they, they do send emails in um, making suggestions. So they are all appreciated and I do pay attention to each and every one of them. And I, and I um, would encourage you to send them in more. So please do click on the on air team on Midlands 103 and drop me an email if you would like to come on air and talk to me. If you're involved in a project, perhaps your school, or club or workplace is doing something innovative in terms of minding the environment, protecting the environment and perhaps mitigating against climate change. Well, I would love to hear about that and feature it here on the show. So please do get in contact. If you're listening to us today on Midlands 103 FM, this is just a reminder that the podcast is available on Spotify, Google and indeed Apple Podcasts. So if you, you know, you might miss an episode on occasion because, you know, we all have busy lives. You have no excuse now. All you have to do is hop on to your preferred podcast app and listen to Let's Go Green with myself, Ashling O'Rourke, at a time that suits you a little bit better. That's all I have time for on this week's episode of the show. I've got a very interesting show lined up for you next week. I'm going to be talking about a new study that has looked at an issue that's very close to my heart. It's looked at the representation of people who have disability and the representation of people with disability and representative groups in conversations around the environment and climate change. And it's come up with some really interesting findings. So I'll be talking to Hans Zomer for next week's show on that. And I'm delighted to say that I have finally found a hairdresser who is doing things a little bit differently and is talking to me about how they have made their salon, a salon that's been in business for well over 20 years, how they've turned things around in the last 18 months or so and made their practice much more sustainable, much more environmentally friendly, much more staff friendly as a result of all of these changes, as it turns out. They're now more profitable than ever. So stay tuned to that one on next week's episode of Let's Go Green. In the meantime, stay safe and have a great week. Midlands 183.